Welcome to this week's podcast from Suncoast Church. We hope that this message inspires you and helps you grow in your relationship with Jesus Christ. For more details, check out suncoast.org.au. We hope you enjoy this message. I love it. I just a sucker for Christmas and everything it brings. And our um, the show we do every year, it is just honestly one of the highlights of our calendar and um, and we're doing a fourth one for the first ever time this year so we're doing it Friday, Saturday, Sunday night and then Sunday morning as well so our team's doing an amazing job um, and so um, heap of opportunity for you to like we've got these in your seats right heap of opportunities for you to make Christmas count so if you're just visiting Suncoast Church if you've, if you've joined recently I know a lot of you have had heap of people join over the past month or two and one of the greatest ways you can help get kind of knit into community this goes for you watching at home as well online um, is this heap of opportunity of a Christmas time to meet people, to join a team, to volunteer, to give. And so if you're looking at how do I take my next step into this community and what does 2020 look like for me here, Christmas is such a great time for you to get on board with the mission here. And so when you hear us talking about all the things that we do with the church, we do with the church, that doesn't have to be about someone else. It can be about you. And so on Sundays, obviously we gather and we sing together and we hear a message. And in that little middle bit that you just heard, we're talking about our vision and why we exist and our mission and our purpose. And so that doesn't have to be something that you just have to wait and hear about on a Sunday, you can be part of it. So I really want to encourage you, Christmas is such a great time to make it count. Uh, which, And obviously today we're finishing off our series, um, this series, Make It Count, which I hope you've got something out of it. Uh, I know it's been a really fun series to teach through. So if you're just joining us today, if you're just tuning us in, we've over the past six weeks talked on this idea of what it means to live a life that counts. And indeed, what does that mean from a Christian perspective, from a Jesus perspective, to, uh, to make life count and how we outwork that. So today I'm kind of bringing it into a landing. And, um, you know, I've done my research and I've concluded, this is a, this is a uh, I'm just going to put it out there, this is absolute truth, okay? There are only two kinds of people in the world. The first kind of people are those that went on holiday and we come into the holiday season when you go on holidays. A holiday for you in order to make your holiday count, the phone is off, everything's off, you lose track of time, you lose even track of what day it is, and you are just one with the elements, and for you, making your holidays count means you switch off every, including your brain, right? There's those kinds of people. And then there's those who live by a spreadsheet on the holidays for every single half an hour that needs to be accounted for, right? Who's like that? Who do you like? You need to squeeze every moment out of your holidays, right? And so that's really, they're the only two kinds of two people there are. And so Christmas is coming. Some of you are like, I am, I'm just watching the cricket. I am just chilling and you'll find me in the pool, right? And others, you're like, I'm going to be doing this. We're going to travel there. We're going to buy the kids this. We're going to do that. And so, so it's like, it's just both. So, so that sounds like marriage, right? My wife and I have been trying to figure that out for eight years now. And there you go. So, but wherever you are, right? We, what we, when we talk about making making life count or making time count, it's like, it's unique for us all, right? We all have our own way of identifying that. So I discovered, I'm the spreadsheet guy, right? So we'll go on holidays and like, I have every day like mapped out how to like leverage every single moment I can. I discovered this about myself uh, in high school. So I went to the college here. Uh, I graduated at Suncoast Christian College. We just had our graduation this past week, and it was so cool. And hearing the lives of, uh, of students who really um, had their lives been turned around by the message of Jesus in an incredible way out of school, which is pretty cool. Um, so I, I went here, and my parents were my parents were here. They were pastors here before my wife Chloe and I were. And so uh, they would work here at the office, and the office usually they would wrap up around four-ish. But the, the big problem, school finished at around three. Now, if you're a school student here, you would know that those six hours are already long enough to be on school campus, right? 
I had to sit around for another hour. This is before the days of the interweb and mobile technology and all those things, right? So I just, like, it was horrible. It's just an hour of absolute torture. Like, what do I do? And so, you know, I tried to pass time by eating, and then eventually that didn't, you know. So there's lots of time. So I had to think, how do I maximize this time? Um, and I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm going to figure out a way to make money. That seems to be the best thing to do with my time. Problem was, I wasn't good at anything, okay? And it's still a question going on in my brain right now as well. But anyways, so I'm thinking, what can I do? What can I do that can make money? I know I can teach people how to play guitar. So first step was learning how to play guitar. So when I was, when I was 14, this is my plan. When I was 14, I invested into getting guitar lessons, got guitar lessons, and, uh, you know, 15 bucks for a lesson, good deal. And uh, so I got lessons the following year. So when I was 15... I did one of those little sheets up where you can have the little tear tabs off, like if you want to get lessons. And I started guitar lessons because I had like a block of five hours from three to four, you know, five days a week that I had to fill. So I put it out there, half an hour lessons, $10. You know, you get what you pay for. It's like I learned it a few months ago, then I'll teach you. And before I knew it, am I, I'm not lying, am I, Dad? Like before I knew it, I had like at least filled up eight of those 10 hours a week, sorry, Four of those eight, so you think I'm great at numbers, right? So I had eight students a week. I was making 80 bucks as a 15-year-old. And otherwise, I'd just be sitting on my hand doing nothing. So that's just kind of how my brain's wired. I'm like, how can I make the most? How can I make every moment count? And every moment of my day and every moment of your life, and hopefully you ask, well, we've been asking that question over the past series. So let me ask you this. If you had, if you had, if you found out you just had one week left to live, one week left, what would you do? Now, I'm going to take the liberty and, and, and assume your answer, and most likely, at least for most of you, I assume your answer would probably be, I'll spend it with those I love, and I will leave no word unsaid. And maybe there's someone in your life, and you haven't reached out for an awful long time, and there's just things that need to say, maybe that's the time, I'm going to get the phone, or I'm going to ask them to come visit me, whatever it might be, and you just want to make it count, and because really, you don't need me to tell you this, you know there's things that count most to us are people in our lives, right? So, so we'll just... We want people close to us, say everything needs to be said, laugh, share, fun, that kind of stuff, right? But let me ask you this. What if it wasn't a week you had left? What if you found out you had a year and you could do whatever you wanted with that year? You had a year, a year to live. What would you do? And again, I want to take the liberties of of assuming probably what you do, as well as what I just mentioned, what you'd do if you had a week to live. You'd probably, on, on top of that, you maybe would... Uh, you know, get your financial house in order. You'd get your will sorted out. You'd make sure those who, those who were left behind after you were looked after. And, and you know, and, and maybe if there was a few places you wanted to visit, a few bucket list items to tick off, if you could find the room, you'd probably do those things and you'd maximize, you'd make it count that one year you had. Here's the thing. When Jesus turned up on the scene in our Bibles as a man ready to begin his ministry, he had three years to make it count. Three years. Three years to make a difference, ultimately three years to change the world. Prior to his being 30, where Jesus began his ministry, he worked a job, he lived in the town where he grew up with his family, um, and he you know, had his profession, it was a really unknown town, he was unknown. And then at 30, he was baptized by John the Baptist, who was filled with the Holy Spirit and began his ministry. And in three years... He turned the world upside, or at least laid the groundwork. So, so what I want to do is, well, what do we learn from Jesus? Knowing that he had three years to make it count, what was his focus? What was his intention? Where was his commitment? Where did he devote the lion's share of his time and his energy and his passion? Now, ultimately, 
the, the most significant thing Jesus did happened on one weekend. Right? In the crux of the Christian message is on the Friday, Jesus was crucified and it was, he died for all the sins of the world. Big deal. And then on the Sunday morning, he was resurrected. And that's ultimately with him invited all of humanity to experience a brand new life by putting their trust in him. Right? That's what the, the foundation of the Christian faith is based off the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that happened on one weekend. But the three or so years prior to that is where Jesus laid the groundwork to ensure that that event would do what it was intended to do, impact the whole world. So what, what did Jesus do in those three years to make it count? Jesus gave himself fully to those whom God gave him. Let me say it again. Here's what Jesus did with those three years. In those three years, Jesus had with him his disciples as a group of 12 of them. And those group of 12 would have spent every day with Jesus, all day. Now, as much as we, we know Jesus traveled, and in fact, they spent you know, three years traveling the, the, the ancient Israel countryside. There were crowds around him. In fact, Jesus pulled a crowd like no one else could pull a crowd. I mean, people, people would travel days on foot in the hot Middle Eastern sun to see Jesus preach for days on end, even without food, right? Jesus would pull crowds of thousands. But yet, every time Jesus would travel, he'd go with the same group of followers, his 12 disciples. So he handpicked. Now, if you've ever, if you've ever been on a camping trip with people before, right? So, so I'm just going to assumptions that the generally, the odds would say, generally speaking, if, if there's a girl's trip, they're going to be in the lap of luxury. If it's a bloke's trip, they're going to be the opposite, right? You're going to be hitting, you're going to be in the bush. You're going to be, I know, I know that's not always the case. I know this, but I'm just, just go with me for a moment. I'm, I'm rolling with the stereotype here, okay? If you've ever spent several days straight with men in the wild, things get a little rowdy, okay? In the best possible way. So make no mistake about it. Jesus, as a rabbi, as an unmarried man, spent all the time with the boys for three years on the road, right? There's no way hiding it. That's some quality time. Can you imagine? You know, if you've ever gone at camping, it's like technology's gone, all these things, and you just get to spend time with people face-to-face, close. The conversation goes beyond just how I hear good, right? It gets deep. It starts to get meaningful. Imagine if you had three years of that, Okay. So these guys got close, and we see Jesus. As much as he gave, he gave ministry to the masses, as much as he gave ministry to individuals, he gave moments to an individual, he gave the lion's share of his life to those who knew him best, to those who were closest to him. Jesus gave himself fully to those in whom God gave him. In those three years, it is so easy to deduce that Jesus spent the lion's share of his life with a very small, exclusive group of people. And this is ultimately was Jesus' plan in ensuring that his message would spread like wildfire across the planet. He didn't preach to everyone. He didn't give himself to the crowds. He didn't give himself to the masses. He gave himself to those whom God gave him. And, and one of the disciples, his name was John, and he wrote about this very dynamic. He understood Jesus Jesus recognized this dynamic. And so John was uh, not only one of Jesus' uh, first disciples. He was also the last living of the 12. He's probably the only one that died of old age. And his letter, the Gospel of John about Jesus' life, was written. He didn't want to repeat kind of what the other Gospels had already written, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John's account. So he wanted to write something. That's why John's really different to the other three. It was written much later in his old years as an old man in prison. And here's what he wrote about what Jesus prayed, catch this, on his last night on earth. He'd spent three years with his men. He knew he was about to be betrayed by one of them. There's an interesting thought. And ultimately falsely accused of doing nothing wrong, 
crucified and resurrected. So in his last night on earth, here's the prayer. And John recorded what Jesus prayed. Here's it in, in the 17th chapter. Jesus prayed, and he's praying to his heavenly Father. So that I've revealed to you, I revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the whole world. I'm praying for these guys, the ones who were closest to me. I'm praying for them, those you've given me, for they are yours. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by the name that you gave me. Okay, so, so here's Jesus, last night on earth. His attention and his focus is like, as much as he's about to do something for the whole world, he's like, for the past three years, God, you have given me these guys. And I've given the best of myself to them. And I am entrusting this message. And ultimately, these are going to be those who witness my resurrection. I'm entrusting this, this amazing message to those whom you have given me. Now, what's interesting is how much Jesus seemed to disdain just the crowd of things. And as I mentioned, there was always, there was always crowds around. Jesus never lacked a crowd with him. But as often as you'd read a story that Jesus would gather crowds to him, you see Jesus running away from them. And if those of you ever read the, the gospel accounts of Jesus' life, you'd see Jesus ministered to people, Jesus fed people, Jesus, they wanted to make Jesus king, they wanted to make Jesus famous and put him up on a pedestal, and he would withdraw. He'd either withdraw away to a mountainside to pray, or he'd disappear and his disciples would be like, where is Jesus? Like, he would just get away from the crowd. He was not enamored with the crowd. He kept giving himself to those who were closest to me. Now, make no mistake, Jesus loves everyone. Jesus loved everyone. When a person would come across his path, he would give ministry to them. If there was someone sick, he would heal them. When there was a crowd, he would preach to them. But then he would remove himself from the crowd and retreat to those whom he was closest to. He had three years to make it count. And instead of impressing everyone, and instead of changing the whole world, he invested the best of himself into those who knew him best. And here's the point I want to make from this, is drawing a crowd doesn't necessarily make your life count. And this is worth knowing, right? Because in our culture, isn't this true, right? We equate, we equate crowds and followers and numerics and, and with significance, right? Like that person is, is truly significant if they're known. And, and, and again, you know, you know this, so I'm just pointing out the obvious, right? There can be a lot of people in the world who are highly known. It doesn't mean they're highly significant, right? Their lives might be known by a lot of people. Does it really mean their lives accounting for what really Count. And I want to draw out the correlation between the Jesus view of making life count and maybe the dominant cultural view of making life count. You don't need to be drawing crowds. Your name doesn't need to be in bright lights. You don't need to have a million followers in your social media page to feel like or to know that your life is really making it count, right? And we see this example from Jesus. Yeah, there was a crowd. Yeah, he would minister to them. Yeah, when the opportunity presented himself. But here's the thing. Jesus gave as much of himself to crowds as he would to an individual. He was not enamored with the crowds. The crowds didn't have his loyalty. Right? Having a fan base wasn't Jesus' drive. In fact, Jesus understood the, you know, how fickle the crowd was. And if you're familiar with the story, and, um, and for those of you, if you haven't kind of read the, the whole, all, the, all the stories about Jesus Christ and the Gospels, it was amazing. The week before he was crucified, he arrives into Jerusalem where the crucifixion happened to a hero's welcome. The crowds lined the street. You know, you know this story, right? They were applauding him. They were laying palm trees down. Like they were singing songs about him like he was a conquering king coming into town, right? So here he comes in this, the crowds just completely worshiping him. A week, a week later, parents, it sounds like you're teenagers this next bit, right? The week later, they're saying, crucify him. Jesus refused to give his heart to the crowd because he knew the crowd could sway. 
the opinions of the crowd didn't determine whether he would not his life was counting for something, right? So I want to make the point really clear. It just it's so important for you to know, okay? Don't judge yourself whether or not you have amassed a huge group of following, whether you feel like everyone knows your name. A crowd is not the litmus test of whether or not your life is counting for something significant. Okay? So don't don't worry about the crowds. Now, now here's what's um here's what's fascinating to me is in our culture, we have this um almost like and by our I mean Western culture, and I'm gonna speak on behalf of all the West. We have we have this uh this weird I guess I'll use the word obsession with celebrity, celebrity culture. It sells magazines, it sells news. Like, it's funny to me when I turn on the news and like the number one story of the day is some celebrity's life, right? It's, and it just shows what our culture value. People, oh, no way, did you hear what happened to them? You know, they don't know you. You don't know them. But yet we seem to be obsessed with their life. Now, the word celebrity, it literally means, it means to be celebrated, right? And so they're the people who are celebrated. And so we celebrate, you know, for whatever reason, our culture loves, loves to celebrate their lives. But I'm challenged by the thought, if, if life isn't about impressing the crowds and make, living a life that counts, isn't about whether the crowds know me, and whether or not I am celebrated by the crowds and celebrated by the masses, I think we should be more, and I certainly know, I, I, this is something that I try and live out, the question is, am I being celebrated, not by the crowds and not by those who don't know me, but am I being celebrated by those who know me? Do the people who know you, are they grateful that you're in their life? Not are you a celebrity to the masses and the crowds, are you a celebrity at home? Now, to just clarify this, I don't mean, do you act like a celebrity at home? Right? <laughs> don't do that, don't, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. But do you, do you give yourself, like Jesus, do you give yourself to those whom God has given you in such a way that they celebrate, they celebrate that you are in their life? I had a, I, again, the, the celebrity culture thing to me is hilarious. And I don't know if you've ever, you know, I went around the room from, I was about to say if I hand the mic, but if I hand in this, you know, come on in. Um, weird. So, you know, if I asked, have you met celebrity? Have you had celebrity moments? Some of you probably have, and I, I definitely know I've had embarrassing moments of just being like, I can't believe I said that to them. But I don't want to embarrass myself today, so I'm going to embarrass someone else. So I'm not going to mention his name, though, a mate of mine. He was starstruck several years ago when he was invited to a friend of a friend's house, and the friend of a friend happened to be the child of one of the most famous lead singers of one of the most famous bands in the world. And he was a huge hero of his. My friend was a musician. So he got invited to his house for a barbecue, and this is in Britain. And so he was freaking out. I can't believe we got to this guy's house because he's a friend of a friend of the son. And so he's like, this is going to be amazing. And so he gets to the house and it's like this big mansion. It's like, this is so cool. And there's a barbecue. And he meets the lead singer of this band. I'm not mentioning his name because many of you know who it is. Don't need to know that part. But he's there going, this is amazing. So he's all nervous. He's got butterflies. And he's like, what am I going to do? I've got to, you know, make this moment count. And, you know, he had starstruck. So he offered to do the barbecue. Big mistake. Now, without getting into all the details, this is no word of a lie, there was an explosion in the guy's kitchen. And as the story goes, the, uh, the lead singer of this band doesn't know my mate, right? He's who's this guy cooking, cooking at my, in my house? Goes up, puts his arm around and goes, mate, I, I think it's time for you to leave. Boots him out. There you go. How good celebrity culture. Amazing. So, so I don't know if you've got stories like that, but here's the thing, right? I get there's a part of us where the celebrity thing, if it means to be celebrated, Sure, we all have, I think, a God-given, there's something God-given inside of us where we desire to be celebrated, and so you should be. Your Heavenly Father certainly celebrates you. He thinks you're magnificent. You might not think about yourself, but you need to know 
your heavenly father, and if you're watching at home, your heavenly father thinks the world of you. You're brilliant. In fact, he loves you so much. <laughs> he thinks so much of you. He thought you were worth dying for. Okay, so, so clearly there's a part of you that goes, yeah, I want to be recognized. I want to be celebrated. Well, your heavenly father's already celebrating you. But instead of simply did the crowds, the masses, or those who don't know my name, are they celebrating me? Here's my question for us all. Do those who know me best respect me most? Because it's easy to get respect from a crowd, right? You might know someone who's the head of a company or doing a great work with some mission organization, not for profit, and like, well, that is really respectful. But you don't know them, right? You're not in their world. You don't hang with them every day. You don't have to wake up next to them. So the people we see from afar, and I'll use the blanket term celebrity, right? See these people from afar, and you might respect some of them. But here's the thing. Do the people who know you, do the people who know me best, are they the ones who respect me the most? Because I would argue to truly live a lot, to know that you live in a life that counts, isn't whether the crowd celebrate you, isn't whether people who you don't know very well respect you, but it is do those who know you best and those who are closest to you, those who God has given you, are you living your life in such a way? And do you carry yourself in such a way? And do you live amongst them in such a way that they celebrate you? That those who are closest in your circle and those who have to live with you, do they respect you the most? And in wrestling with this idea and being challenged by it and thinking about how I live my life and hopefully you're thinking about how you live your life and am I making this count? Here's the gen- this is my genuine, ho- hopefully this might be helpful for you and you've been around for any amount of time, you've probably heard me mention this before, but it's a, it's a go-to for me that reminds me, hang on, am, am I making this moment count? And how do I know if my motive is right? How do I know if my gender's right? How do I know if what I'm engaging with is actually gonna be a blessing to those around me? And it's this question or it's this thought. Aim to bless, not just impress. Okay? So if you're wondering, if you're wondering, am I making it count to those who know me best? Here's the go-to. And it rhymes, so it's memorable, okay? That's, why it's, that's what rhyming does. If, you can, if, you can, if it rhymes, you'll remember it. Aim to bless, not just impress. If you care about the crowds knowing your name and people who don't know you respecting you, go for being impressive, right? Do something that will impress people. Do something that will get the crowds applauding you. But if you really want to make it count to those who count the most to you, aim to bless, not just impress. Now, make no mistake about it. If you aim to bless, it's very likely that'll be impressive. People are like, thank you, that's so impressive. But don't let being impressive be the goal of your life. Aim to be a blessing, you don't need a title. You don't need permission. You don't need to be a celebrity. You don't need a paycheck to be a blessing. It just needs to be your aim, right? And so in your life, how do I know if I'm making my life count? Is it to do with my job? Is it to do with my title? Is it to do with my roles? How do I know if I'm making, if I'm making my life count? Well, my challenge is to you, aim to bless, not just impress. So here's the thing. Jesus' plan, right, to change the whole world changed the whole world, was to invest into the 12 lives God gave him. Just 12. Now remember, yes, 100%. Jesus preached to the masses. When opportunities came for ministry, he ministered. He did all that. But the line, are you hearing me, right? He was camping with them every night, woke up every day, traveled with them for three years. The lion's share of Jesus' life wasn't sitting on a throne, you know, saying, here's my judgment, judge, 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 just have lines and streams of people judging. Well, he's so wise. He invested into those in whom God gave him. So my question to us is, will you give yourself to those whom God has given you? Will you give 
the best of yourself, part of you that's going to be a blessing, will you give yourself to those whom God has given you, to those who are closest to you, those you work with, that person you have to wake up to in the morning, those faces you have to see in the morning, right? A barista. <laughs> are you nice? Will you give yourself? And as we finish this, obviously we've talked about some big topics in series. As we finish this series, is what I want to draw it down to. That are you prepared with your life and whatever resources are at your fingertips, whatever opportunities life has presented you with, whatever open doors your life has, whatever giftings, whatever measure of stature you have in your life or the lack thereof, are you prepared to give the best of yourself to those who know you best? Because I think we'd all agree they are the ones who truly do count, at least should count the most to us. Now, in, in wrestling with this myself, I honestly, I ask the question, I often do this with my messages, I'm like, really, Jono? Really? Is that what the measurement of a life that counts is? Does, does that really count just to be a blessing to those who are in my inner circle? Um, and the thing is, we aren't the first to wrestle with those questions. And often when I wrestle with certain particular existential questions or questions about purpose and meaning, I try and go back into history and back into other people who have wrestled with the same questions because it's likely we aren't the first to wrestle with these tensions. And one of the authors I go to a lot, and many of you would be familiar with these writings, C.S. Lewis, um, during World War II, one of the things he would do, he was a, a philosophical thinker and a theologian and artist, storyteller, amazing guy. He did a radio program whilst Britain was in the middle of war and obviously struggling with the national morale. So he thought, how can I use my giftings to be a blessing to my nation? And so he would kind of go on talkback radio and people would write in letters about their struggles and about the, the fear of life and the worries of war and meaning and all those things around and the brotherhood of humanity and hatred and violence. And so he'd do his best to kind of answer to try to bring encouragement to people. He used what he had, his ability to think in a creative, philosophical manner, and bless people. Anyway, during this time, a, uh, a lady wrote to him. And at her, that, this point in the war, her husband was off fighting. A lot of her friends and people in the community knew were involved somewhere in the war. They were doing something, you know, that seemed to be helping the war effort. You know, they were either, you know, mechanic or in the medical industry, something like that. And she was having a real crisis she was kind of just looking at herself and looking insular. And she's like, I'm just, I'm at home. And, and this, this is my life. Why are all these people doing allegedly these glorious things, you know, saving the empire? Does my life count? And is what I'm doing, does it really matter? And she was kind of having, and, and maybe, maybe for you, maybe you've asked that of your own life, maybe the job you're in or the life you're in or your lifestyle going, is this really counting? Do I need to be doing something else? Do I need to have another title or another responsibility to make it count? Well, the words that C.S. Lewis shared with this lady, I think is going to be helpful for you and I. This is, again, this is going back to World War II era. But here's how he replied to this particular lady. He said, I think I can understand that feeling about a housewife's work being like that. But it is surely, in reality, the most important work in the world. <laughs> and he goes on and explains his reasoning. He said, what do ships, railways, mines, cars, remember this is in World War II, government, what do they all exist for? Except that people may be fed warmed and safe in their own homes. As Dr. Johnson said, to be happy at home is the end of all human endeavor. So we wage war in order to have peace. We work in order to have a weekend, <laughs> a leisure. We produce food in order to eat it. So your job, I love this, your job is the one for which all others exist. Isn't that amazing, right? Now, here's the thing. So that was his take, encouraging this lady and what she had in her life to say, listen, listen, look at it differently. You're, what you're doing right now, this can truly count for something significant. So he found a way of causing a look at what was in her hands to realize it is a blessing to those who are closest to you. 
Now, so whatever you have in your life, right, whether you're someone who works, you know, is a homemaker, whether you're someone who divides that between working and being home, you're someone who, who is the breadwinner, the salt, whatever, and however your life dynamics work out, because everyone's is different, and we've got to do what we've got to do to, to make ends meet at times, and we go through different seasons of life. So maybe for you, making it t- count doesn't mean getting a different job, or quitting a job, or starting a job, or not having a job, or doing, maybe it's got nothing to do with the titles you have, or what you're getting paid for, or not paid for. Maybe it's in your determination to say, I am going to be a blessing to those in whom God has given me, those of whom are closest to my life. If it is my family, I'm going to be a blessing to my family. I'm going to make sure that they may talk about me. They are celebrating the fact that I'm in their life. They're not dredging like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I have to wake up with them in the house every single day, right? For those of you who work, are your colleagues stoked (laughs) that you go to work with them? Or are they dreading the fact when you walk into the office? I'm just being honest, right? Are you making it count to those who are closest to? Are you prepared to give yourself and make it count to those whom God has given you? For the bosses here, do your employees dread your leadership? Right, if you're, if you're in the trades here, do the clientele like always leave bad reviews about you? Or are you the one that go, oh, I'm referring you to everyone. You just, you make it count, right? Wherever it is and whatever your commitments, whatever you've got, if you aim to bless, not just impress. You are going a long way to making it count for those in whom your heavenly Father has brought into your world. Awesome. Thanks at home. I heard your claps too. That was was deafening. In fact, listen, we keep going back through history. We will see that that most people who made it count for the many we're usually primarily concerned with making it count for those who were closest to them. Perhaps there is no better example than King David in the Old Testament. He was the second king of Israel. Uh, Jesus came from the line of King David. And you know, we're, King David is obviously mostly known for, he was, a, he was one of those kings that are like a Hollywood styles, right? Like would lead his armies into battle. He came to notoriety as a shepherd boy, killing a giant that no one else wanted to kill. Like the guy was just a beast of a leader, right? So he's known for his great exploits. In his time, he defeated every single enemy that his nation had. Like the guy was a king. But before he had the name king, before he had the role and position of king, he carried another one, fugitive. Funnily enough, it was his own father-in-law who was chasing him down, trying to kill him. Can anyone relate? You know, anyone relate? Of course, we don't know it's the father-in-law you have to be scared of. It's obviously the, ah, you guys said it. I didn't say it. And it's actually ladies who said it as well. So I got off the hook with, anyway. Okay, moving on. Great one. He was fugitive. His father-in-law was trying to kill him. His father-in-law was named Saul. He was the king of Israel. And so David was on the run. David was hiding out. And we pick up this story here. This is in the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. Samuel was an Old Testament prophet, wrote about the events that took place, particularly around David's reign. David was hiding out. Uh, and so we pick up the story here while he's on the run. This is in 1 Samuel 22. It says, David left Gath, it was a, a location, and he escaped to the cave of Adullam. Then when his brothers and his father's household, right, so his family, when they heard about where he was, they went down there to him. Notice this, all those who are in distress or in debt or discontented, this is really the cream of the crop, right? They gathered around him, notice this, and he became, say this word with me, he became their what? Think of this, okay? David's on the run. Talk about being discontented and in distress and in debt. Okay, your father-in-law is trying to kill you. The king and his army are chasing you down. He's in a bad place. He's hiding out in the cave. 
And then God brings all these wonderful people into his vicinity. Now, if you're in David's shoes and you were like trying to formulate a plot to get yourself out of this mess, this would not have been your first choice, okay? So all these those who are discontented, in debt, in distress, other fugitives, losers, they gathered to him. David could have easily sat there and been one of them, been in distress with them, being broken with them, losing heart with them. But something significant took place there. Something that, to me, I find incredible courage from. He determined not to simply wear over him the label or the name fugitive. He said, I'm going to become your commander. Instead of just sitting there blaming his position or his situation on the injustices of government or God, he decided he was going to make that moment count. And we could often find ourselves in situations that are unfair, and indeed they might be, difficult. How often do we all find ourselves in distressed, discontented? Many of you might be in debt, and it's choking the life out of your life. You can find ourselves there. I think we need to learn something here from David's example. Instead of just letting that be his cave where he wallowed in, something else happened in that cave. He decided to stand up and make it count. And those men who, who came into his sphere broken, scared, when they left the cave, history now records them as what is known as David's mighty men, essentially David's special forces. They came in losers. They left legends. Just made that up. David made it count. He chose a name, a name that God had graced him to wear, a name that had always been on his life, the leader, king, before he ever had the title, as a grace on his life, as a gifting on his life. So he didn't wait till he had the permission or the platform or the crowds. He's like, this is the lot that God has given me. I'm going to make it count, baby. I'm sure he said that too. And he became, here's the thing, he became their commander. And so he did what commanders do, commanded. He's like, you guys are going to be champions. We're in debt. You're going to rise up and you're going to beat it. We're in distress. God's bigger. I'm in debt. Paid back. You know, whatever it is. He started leading. He started leading. So my question for you is this. What name has God given you? Are you wearing that? Now you, might, you might be waiting for someone else to acknowledge it. David didn't acknowledge it. He's like, these are the ones God gave me. I'm going to start being commander right now. I'm going to start investing and aiming to bless. I don't need the title or the crowd. I don't want to do anything impressive. I just want to bless these guys. And it brought out the God potential in their lives. My question for you is, what name has God given you? Are you making that name count? Your name might be dad, might be mom, might be uncle or auntie, might be boss, might be brother, could even be neighbor, might be pastor. Whatever, whatever name God has given you, here's the thing. Are you making that name count? You're looking, and you might not have the cream of the crop around you. You look at those who God has given you, like, that would have been my first choice. But it's who God's given you, because maybe he's given you what you need to make it count for those who are closest to you. And what do we do if we've blown it? You might be feeling like that today. You might even be watching online thinking this, well, I've got a few different names in my life, and I've burnt those bridges, I've maybe ruined relationships, I've maybe lost credibility. What do you do when that happens? Because I know we can all find, we definitely all find ourselves in many seasons of the life where we feel like I've blown it there, had an opportunity, I definitely didn't make it count. Here's the thing. Whatever, whatever name God gives you, you need to remember this, he's also going to grace you for it. You're graced for whatever name he's given you. Now, if you're not a normal church person, you're not familiar with this idea of grace, essentially it's this term that it's almost like used as a blanket term for whenever God gives anything to people, it's never earned. You have to understand that about how God works. We can't earn a thing. We don't come to church to earn something. We don't give financially to earn something. We don't do it. We do it in response to what God's freely given us. Okay? It's gratitude. 
So whenever God gives something, it's called grace. But grace is double-edged. It's a two-sided coin. It's a double-edged sword. It's a two-faced, I don't know, I'm just trying to think of a double-edged thing. So it's two sides to it. So when you're, say, take, pick a name, say parent. You have the name, or that's one of the names God's given you, parent. He'll grace you for that. Grace does two things for you. Grace, will, yes, it will cover the areas where you are weak and you're messing up and you don't have what it, you feel like you don't have it takes. God will cover you for that. That's what His grace does. It's more than enough. It is sufficient for your life. When you are weak, God's grace is strong on your behalf. But grace doesn't just cover you where you're weak or forgives you for where you go wrong and sin. It also empowers you to do what's right and empowers you to make a difference. And it gives you the strength to do what He's called you to do and to wear the name that He's given you to wear and to make it count for those He's brought into your life in a way that you couldn't have done on your own ability. So whatever God gives you, because He's given it to you, it's a gift. He's graced you for it. And so if you feel like any name you've been given, maybe as a boss or a parent or a son or a daughter or a friend or a neighbor, you feel like you've blown it, you've burnt the bridges. This is where we lean again into our faith in God. We go, God, I need your grace right now. Now, here's the thing. You can start, you can start being a blessing today. You might have been the opposite of impressive for many, many years in the different roles or different environments you've been in, different relationships you've had. But you can start building those bridges today that maybe you've burnt down. And you can either sit in the cave, distressed, discontented, or in debt. But what happens is, when you enter into the cave, probably speaking, where God dwells, you enter into the faith cave, as it were, God will never leave you the same way. And He'll start speaking into a potential. He'll say, hey, I know, I know you've blown it there, but my grace is sufficient for you. Come on, carry that name again. Come on, step up, Dad, Mom, Brother, Sister, boss, you can do it. I've graced you for it. I want you to engage again. And here's all you have to do. Aim to bless. Just aim to bless. You don't need approval. You don't need applause. You don't need crowds. You don't need to be impressive. I'm telling you, if you just reevaluate your motive and say, my aim for those who God has given me in my circle here is just to be a blessing. What is true? Down the track, you might find yourself being so impressive. And you might find yourself people coming to you going, how did you do that? How did you rebuild those bridges? How did you take those people who are all broken and now they're heroes and they're champions? How did you do that with your kids? How did you do that with your marriage? How did you do that with your employees? How did you do that? I just aim to be a blessing, right? Here's what we see. This is amazing. When those men entered David's cave, and this is so important to understand, when they entered David's cave, they heard David was in there, they entered it. It saved their life, right? It saved them. But the moment he became their commander and they submitted under his authority, it changed them. They went from men who were discontented and distressed and disheartened to champions, to warriors, to valiant, right? Entering David's cave saved them, but submitting under his authority, it changed them. To understand the difference there. One level of the saving the next level was a changing. They entered the cave, it saved their life. But submitting under David's authority, it changed their life. And in the same way, in the same way that they submitted and they were changed, this is a picture of what happens with our faith in Jesus. You might come to Christ recognizing your deep need to be rescued and to be saved from your mistakes, maybe from some of your brokenness and your pain, from your sin, and you come to Christ. Make no mistake about it. When you enter into the Christ cave, 
and you come to Jesus, you are saved. But Jesus means so much more for you than just to be saved. He wants your life to be changed because He recognizes there is depths of potential inside of you in order to make your life count, that He has graced your life for something extraordinary. So in order for your Christianity, my Christianity, for our faith to count, Jesus has to be more than just Savior. He must also be Lord, Commander. And it's one thing, right? Come on. It is one thing for us to go, Jesus, I'm so grateful for your love. And we are. And I'm so grateful for His grace. And maybe for you, you've never even experienced that. You're going to have a moment today to experience that, to know His grace for your life and to be saved by His love, to be rescued from yourself, to be rescued from sin. This is amazing. But beyond that, He is much more than just Savior. He is also Lord. And the moment you submit under His authority, to not just say, Jesus, save me, but now Jesus, lead me. Or as the old school song, country and western song will go, Jesus, take the wheel. <laughs> when you let Him take the wheel. Can we sing that song? Take, take. When you say, Jesus, your Savior and your Lord, changes everything. You know what it changes? It changes you. And guess who else has changed when you're changed? Everyone, those in whom your heavenly Father has given you. And if you really want to make it count with your life, it begins with not just being saved by Jesus. You need to submit to His Lordship. The more you submit to His Lordship, the more He changes your life. And you might come to Him broken, and some of you might feel like that today, in distress, discontented, in debt. The incredible thing happens when you submit under Jesus' Lordship. He begins to change who you are. And you just never know how much of a blessing is on the other end of your changed life. My prayer is for you, the more you follow Jesus and the more you submit to His Lordship over your life, that you would recognize Him changing you from the inside out. And you would recognize Him changing your motives from being someone who always seeks approval from others and needs to get applauded by others and need the crowd to someone who goes, I am content with just being a blessing to those 12 disciples God has given me. And I'm going to pour. Listen, if God gives me opportunity, I'm going to serve the crowd. And if God gives me the moment, I'm going to minister to people and to strangers and people. But right now, I'm going to focus on those who my Heavenly Father gives me. And I am going to make it count. Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. We hope you were encouraged by what you heard and inspired to grow in your relationship with Jesus Christ. For more details, check out suncoast.org.au. Hope you can join us again on the next podcast or here at Suncoast Church.